That was a phenomenal experience. Hello and welcome to Horsehair Wigs from Irish Rule of Law International. My name is Evelyn McCleverty and we're back with a new guest this month. I became absorbed and obsessed slightly. That's Garrow Joe Queen, who teaches transnational human rights litigation at the Irish Centre for Human Rights in Galway. Garrow is also head of the Global Legal Action Network, an organisation which pursues justice across borders for communities directly impacted by human rights abuses. If law was truly emancipatory and was, was delivering on all its promises, we wouldn't be in the situation that we are now. Garage and his team have a very interesting portfolio of work and are currently involved in a landmark case being taken by young people from Portugal who are suing European states over climate change. The burden sharing that each state should take on in the climate fight is uncertain. I was really curious in talking to Garage about the work he and his team do and how 9-11 and the US invasion of Iraq made him leave a job as a cancer biologist in the US to follow what he really wanted to do, pursue a career in international law. Once this happened, these these events, these global spectacles happened, I became absorbed and obsessed slightly with it and became aware that this was really the thing that motivated me. Current affairs, international law, politics. This is really where my heart was. I was pushed actually by a colleague. She just noted this, that I was starting my day reading the news rather than preparing my cell cultures. And um, the law school there gave me permission to audit a a class um, which was run by Juan Mendes. And I was hooked. Yeah, so that that was the start of the journey and it ended up cutting short my science career. And opting out of a very, you know, a prestigious university and a great opportunity, it took a lot of soul searching before making that move. And what did you do from from there? Did you just jack in the science then? I did. I jumped on an Aer Lingus flight back to Galway and started studying law at night time. And then my summers were out in a mixture of Palestine and Syria, working with different NGOs. And that was a, a revelation uh, to see beyond the headlines, to understand the human dimension and, and the catastrophe facing some populations out there. So I was in the Golan Heights, which is a territory that has been occupied by Israel, Syrian territory occupied by Israel since 1967. And out of the 140 villages that were once there, I think about four or five stand predominantly made up of the Druze ethnic minority. And I yeah, lived in that village and got to understand the borderland area right beside a buffer zone where they could look into Syria and shout across to their relatives. And yeah, this is prior to the Arab Spring uprising, Syrian civil war, a very particular moment in time, but very formative from my own personal experience. From that time, I started to see transnational connections that the ways in which Ireland was linked to what was going on and I became really interested in understanding how that could be teased out or harnessed. And what was the Irish influence that you saw there? So during the Arab Spring in Bahrain, protesters who were targeted on the street were would have fled to hospitals to be treated for their injuries. And it was here they were rounded up, tortured. And as the protests and resistance moved on, this became a site of control where people would be targeted who had a particular form of injury and could often be interrogated, tortured for actually receiving medical treatment. And these same sites are accredited by the Irish Medical Council. These are sites where when you graduate as a doctor and you train in these hospitals, you get an Irish medical degree. So we became interested in the inconsistency between the reality and what was been said on paper. And that started actually a really long-running engagement with the Irish Medical Council, who have systematically turned a blind eye to torture, 
to evidence of torture within these facilities and the mistreatment of political prisoners. It always gives you a, a, a really interesting point of contrast. If people were tortured in the University of Limerick Hospital before receiving treatment, would that be deemed to live? Or would that be acceptable under Irish medical standards? I think we know the answer. But when it happens at a distance and maybe there's other interests involved and there's a huge question over what a, an establishment, you know, a charity like the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland is doing in one of the most well-off areas of the planet. And um, yeah, we're, we're still engaging on that, that, that issue on a long, long-term basis. We engaged with, with a precursor to Glan, it was known as Cartus, Irish Lawyers for Human Rights. And it was an attempt to see if we could institutionalise a form of practice here. And it ran into a number of difficulties. Also, we found it difficult to engage with sufficient legal support. We were young, new, and coming with these big international ideas. And Cartus eventually was reformulated in London as, as Glan. We really started to refine our focus, scale up our ambition, and start to look at sort of really broad, pressing uh, transnational issues where we thought litigation could add value and create social change. What are the themes that Glan is involved in then? We have four main areas of focus. Um, the first is environment and climate change. The second is global finance, trade and supply chains. Again, something that has a strong transnational connection. War and occupation, arms trade across borders and how we're implicated. And the people who are fleeing from all of these harms, be it climate change, war and problematic power imbalances along supply chains, that is migrants. So the, the fourth area is migration and border violence. We, we feel that these capture sort of some mutually reinforcing focus areas that allow for cross-fertilization so that the insights and expertise developed in one has something to offer the other. And, and there's not many organizations who have this transnational focus. It is, it is quite unique in, in that sense. We are trying to understand how we can unlock the potential of foreign legal mechanisms and courts um, to find creative ways for creating social change or instigating social change. There's no roadmap here. And law is also part of the problem. If law was truly emancipatory and was, was delivering on all its promises, we wouldn't be in the situation that we are now. Law is really a tool designed by the powerful for the powerful. And that sense of innovation, we're looking for to unlock law's remaining potential mm. and still hold out hope that law can be part of a, a broader solution. Mm. Um, but it isn't the silver bullet. It is about, with all of these focus areas, working with affected communities, yes. trying to further empower them just to some of our listeners who don't have a legal background, Garage, can you maybe explain what transnational litigation means? It is, uh, this is something we've, we've, we're constantly uh, debating. What's the tagline? The tagline is uh, justice across borders. Our legal systems are jurisdictionally bound. You, you cannot take a, a legal action typically in Ireland against a harm that has happened overseas for the most part. It's in exceptional circumstances you can do this. Similarly, companies have complex corporate structures which insulate them from being sued across borders. The system is set up in this fragmented way to prevent accountability reaching across borders. So what we're trying to do is to figure out how we can join the dots, so to speak. We're looking at how we can mobilise legal action here in cooperation and partnership with the affected communities where the harms are being experienced mm -hmm. and to work in solidarity with mm -hmm. them to try and disrupt the, the current status quo and offer an alternative vision and bring forward their voices on, as to what's happening and demonstrate the direct connectedness um, between 
us and them. Lots of different cases that you're involved in, Garrod, Glan, you and your team. And to give our listeners a glimpse of the variety of the work, I've just pinpointed a couple of, of, of legal cases that you're currently involved in. So one is Glan's involvement with the World Uyghur Congress and its legal challenge in the UK surrounding the importation of cotton products from China's Xinjiang province. The second was Glan's support of land defenders on the Caribbean island of Barbuda, who say that the government there and various corporate interests are destroying protected parks and wetlands in favour of hotels and golf courses. And the third then, the the groundbreaking crowdfunded case being taken by Portuguese children or young adults who are suing states over climate change at the European Court for Human Rights. Garrod, firstly to the the legal challenge, the ruling by the UK High Court in favour of the UK Custom Authorities rejecting your claim, Glan's claim, that they're guilty of failing to investigate whether cotton imports are the product of forced Uyghur labour in China's Xinjiang province, allegedly home to 380 internment camps used to detain Uyghurs and people from other um, Muslim minorities. Maybe firstly, before we go into the case, maybe you can explain to listeners who the Uyghurs are and what these internment camps allegedly are. Yeah, the Uyghur people are part of a Turkic, predominantly Muslim minority in the western region of China, uh, an area that was formerly known as East Turkestan, where this population is from. And they have been subjected to systemic repression, resulting in the destruction of their culture, their language, and the mass internment of the population in various guises. Not only would you have prison facilities, but you would have nearby industrial parks where prisoners are brought in to work typically in the cotton and textile production uh, industry. Uh, children are separated from parents and brought into industrial orphanages where again there's a sort of a, a cultural annihilation happening and the breaking essentially of the social fabric and essentially this amounts to a crime against humanity and arguably genocide and there's credible evidence to suggest that this is the case. Um, including from opinions we, we have commissioned. This is obviously something that the Chinese government are rejecting and they're saying that this is not happening. But yet you're bringing this case in the UK. So tell us about the case. This is the first time the case you just described in the UK High Court. There we were bringing a judicial review uh, hearing which took place over two days in October uh, to the Royal Courts of Justice. And it was the first time that a Uyghur group had set foot in a foreign court to challenge the complicity of global markets in the forced labour of Uyghur people. And the review, judicial review took place over two days in October of 2022. And we argued that a number of government agencies should be investigating the imports under the Proceeds of Crime Act on the basis that the goods that were originating from Xinjiang could be criminal property and trading in them could be amounted to criminal conduct. So that when presented with evidence that they ought to investigate and then halt such imports. And so that was the premise. And unfortunately, we, we lost that initial hearing and that, that initial decision. But what was really interesting is that the government did not dispute that the situation in Xinjiang is appalling and that the evidence was not disputed either. We submitted over a thousand pages of evidence and they agreed that in principle, the Proceeds of Crime Act applies. And this would apply to cotton coming from Xinjiang and that the government indicated they're keeping the situation under review and they may open an investigation if appropriate conditions arise. What does Um, that mean? 
there we're kind of getting to where we lost the, that particular stage of the case, and that is on whether sufficient evidence had been produced to demonstrate that a specific consignment had um, yes was been brought across. So it, it's it, it's a win in the sense that this is the first time that this law has been tested in this way, that the proceeds of crime has been deemed to be relevant. It lays down a marker and is a warning shot, I think, to a lot of corporate retailers whose supply chains intersect with this cotton. And 85% of China's cotton comes from the Uyghur region. So it is, it's about 30% of global cotton. So it's difficult to find a, a main street where cotton is not tainted by Uyghur forced labour and these labour camps. So th- that in itself was significant. And I think that the, the fact that this was recognised to apply in principle could also mean that other products produced in similar circumstances could fall within the scope of the Proceeds of Crime Act and engage the obligations of customs authorities. And therefore, we're, we're targeting that permissive structure. Until this point, cotton was just flowing freely in, regardless of how it was made. And this was represent this represents a shift, I think, in, in people's thinking about yeah, the free flow of, of atrocity goods. Why in the UK did you decide to, to pursue this case? Well, there we had a particular political situation where the parliament had recognised that what is occurring in Xinjiang amounts to genocide. There's also a, you know, a different legal context which enables a more creative approach under the Proceeds of Crime Act, which is slightly different to how it's formulated here. Also, the ability to construct the necessary uh, or bring together you know, a multifaceted legal team capable of grappling with all the complex issues um, that the case raised. And the case is still ongoing. This was just at the High Court. And now we're in the process of appealing this. And our appeal has been granted to the Court of Appeal on two grounds. Uh, challenging the judge's ruling that there was insufficient evidence to investigate on the basis of proceeds of crime despite the court finding a striking consensus, their words, in the evidence of widespread abuses. And second, there's something really quite sinister. We're challenging the perverse situation on what's called adequate consideration. And this is where a purchaser of forced labour cotton will not be deemed to commit an offence if they've paid market value for the cotton. So you can knowingly buy forced labour cotton that is an intimately involved in the commission of a broader crime against a, uh, an entire ethnic group and be off the hook. This means that importers can't be prosecuted for acquiring these goods, even when they know that they're connected to an atrocity crime. And the government's position makes the UK an international outlier. It makes the UK a safe haven for importers of goods produced as a result of crimes against humanity and genocide. So this appeal will challenge that aspect as well. So it'll be a really interesting journey that this case is about to go on and I think cuts to the heart of our complicity between the global north and the global south, mm. uh, broadly mm. broadly told, and um, I, I think is on set to create new precedent and shifts in legal thinking and our understanding of how we're connected to these issues. Absolutely, and not just in the UK, but as you said, internationally. It must feel really exciting to be involved in a case like this. The team have worked relentlessly on this and and what's your involvement as the director in terms of the signing off of these cases or would you sit down together and say look yes this is something that we're interested in pursuing it really depends on the stage i think early stage when we're deciding to move on a particular thing and we're trying to use our instincts and determine whether it fits with our mandate Mm -hmm. who we connect with how we initially build it there's probably more 
Um, and what the legal in, avenues are. Yeah, in in more, to an extent. But really, I think that we're evolving rapidly. So my role is, is also rapidly evolving. Um, I'm interested in creating conditions where this work can thrive. But really, the, the, the heroes in the story are our team. Um, they are the ones that go the extra mile to push the barristers to think differently, to challenge practice, to push it forward and to tackle the big questions. So I, I think there's this audacity there and uh, this daring to challenge. Uh, that's what I really find appealing. So to get to work with these people uh, on a daily basis is incredible, especially as they, their, their expertise. Now they have the space, which didn't really exist before in any other organization, to think patiently on a long-term footing about these issues and to become the preeminent experts in these questions. Exactly. That's really fun. You're listening to Horsehair Wigs from Irish Rule of Law International with me, Evelyn McCleverty. Our guest on this month's show is Garold O'Queen, the head of the Global Legal Action Network, GLON. A note about this podcast, it's funded by Irish Aid and is brought to you by Irish Rule of Law International or IRLI. IRLI is an NGO which uses the rule of law to tackle global injustice and is supported by members of both branches of the legal profession throughout the island of Ireland. You can find out more about its work on its website, irishruleoflaw.ie. Back now to this month's guest, Gary Jo Crean, who picks up by talking about a case Glan is currently involved in with land defenders on the Caribbean island of Barbuda. Garage travelled there just a few months ago. We became interested in Barbuda after Hurricane Irma in 2017, and Hurricane Irma directly hit Barbuda and unusually the entire island was evacuated to Antigua and it is alleged they were prevented from returning. How many inhabitants? A very small population, we're talking the low thousands and at the time while the Barbudans were kept off private developers were flown in and they started to map out and scope and survey sites for luxury developments along the southern coastline, the real pristine white pink sand beaches which until this point had been protected by this communal tenure system where no one actually owned the land. It was distributed in a collective manner and prevented, in in many respects, the really destructive late capitalism developments that you see in Antigua. But this is obviously not being adhered to now. This would be what is termed disaster capitalism, that you use this moment of upset and upheaval to bring in a new order and to uproot this previous system that the islanders had developed after slavery. And essentially what we're seeing is the capture of the entire coastline by wealthy billionaire developers to create luxury villas and build a golf course over one of the region's last wetlands, which is of huge ecological significance to the entire region. Capturing carbon. Yeah, and the islanders then are almost uh, cocooned on their own island and end up in, ironically, servile roles, um, serving these luxury developments the golf courses and there's even a question of whether they'll actually get any jobs in the end and how much will go to outside uh, labor so yeah we were interested in the many ways in which capital was moving and how leases were obtained and how the international system permitted this to happen and yeah we were examining all of the different pressure points which is slowly eroding the land rights there and getting behind the islanders to really start to support them in their stand, because they were the ones, despite being a tiny island, were been trying to stand up to these developers, and we're trying to catalyze that through international legal action. Yeah, but it's really, really interesting that you've become involved in this stage. It, it is, and it's starting to create precedents, legal precedents that are being used in other parts of the Caribbean, because these these small island nations join and fall under the umbrella of the East Caribbean legal system. And that Supreme Court is issuing decisions that are denying other islanders the right to challenge these developments, and 
were supporting two islanders in their appeal to the Privy Council, which is sort of a colonial hang-up. It's the Supreme Court of the East Caribbean Court is actually in London, but they will be decided on Antiguan and Barbuna law, but it'll happen in London. We're assisting them. They're represented by Garden Court Chambers in London um, to challenge their inability to question these developments. And they've been deprived of information, and the argument is, is that it doesn't affect their interests directly. And on this basis, and this has been affirmed at the uh, the Court of Appeal in the East Caribbean Court, and it's been used in places like Grenada. So it, it is regionally significant. And we see this pattern, especially after COVID, of wealthy billionaires eager to have an offshore escape for when things go wrong. Among other things, people love to display their wealth and status to owning these villas. And it is across the Caribbean, again, leading to the destruction of wetlands. Um, these are usually the last places that stand where the protections can be eroded. And it was very interesting to go out to Barbuda and watch all of the materials coming in from North America, European actors involved, and the bulldozing of mangroves. Which are hugely important for sea level rise or coastal erosion, which is happening globally. This is critical to the protection of the islanders and their way of life. Mm -hmm. And they've maintained this really incredible ecosystem. Um, and we think it's a, it's an interesting microcosm. The, the story of Barbuda, while it, it is a small island, it tells the story about communal rights, local land rights, how they need to be protected in the face of capitalism. And again, we, we hope that the work we do there will really spark debate on the direction of travel with regards to developers in that region. So yeah, my, myself and Jasmine Rai, my colleague, spent a week out there as part of a listening exercise because we sense the acceleration of the land grab is occurring through a company that has slightly Orwellian name of Peace, Love, Happiness. It's backed by a US billionaire called Jean-Paul de Joria. He owns Paul Mitchell Hair Studios, his co-founder, and the Patron Drinks Company, and others. And a listening exercise to understand how these developers are impacting on local rights, their land, and really jeopardizing their future. So that was a phenomenal experience. But as we tried to even just walk the beaches... Which are public lands. Yes, but there's a system in place to intimidate locals off. They send security guards first, then they film you, then they follow you, and then they call the police. And have these beaches been bought, that these hotels actually have the beach as part of their complex? This is the impression they're trying to give. And, and the local intimidation is, and, and all of these steps, the securitization that we see. It's investigative work as well by your team. Can you describe how life has changed for these people? The biggest change is their ability to access the coast of their island and the places where they would have camped, hunted, foraged, but also just farmed, owned property. So they've been steadily displaced and pressured into the central part of the island. Their roads are overwhelmed with massive construction lorries. Air quality is reduced and the central forest, which was replete with wildlife and some endangered species like the Barbuda warbler, a rare species of bird, They saw the, I think within a week of Hurricane Irma, the D9 bulldozers came in and cut down a strip, a massive strip through the centre of the island for private jets to land. So they won't have access to these private jet runways. They won't have access to these villas. The rent that's been charged is pittance. The benefit that they accrue over time is virtually nil. And I think the realisation is is setting in that they're at a turning point and that there is a real appetite for change. Mm. And that's what we're there to sort of see if we can 
help with. And we won't have all the answers. We've limited capacities, but we're certainly there to uh, see if we can accelerate things yeah, in a different absolutely. direction. And, and first-hand experience, having been there as well and you know seeing what you saw. Um, going to a, a case as well that Glanor involvement, and this is in relation to the six children and young adults from Portugal who are taking European governments to court as Portugal and other states experience record-breaking heat waves and devastating forest fires on a scale never seen before adding their voices indeed to the global fight for climate justice and amplifying the international pressure applied by the school climate strikers with their Fridays for Future movement. What's Glan's involvement? Because this case has received international headlines. Lots of people are are looking to see where this is going to go. Yeah, I, I think it's safe to say it's the biggest climate change case on the planet at the moment and the one that everyone is watching. It is certainly the biggest and first ever multi-state climate change case heard by Europe's highest human rights court and um, certainly the first climate case filed with the court. And we're there we're supporting these six uh, Portuguese uh, young people uh, to take, it's now 32 uh, governments, that's 27 member states of the EU, plus the UK, Norway, uh, Switzerland, Russia and Turkey, to the court for failing to do their part to avert the climate catastrophe, um, which we argue violates um, several of their human rights as young people. These These people live within a climate change hotspot the impacts are already very real for them as young people and the predictions are that it will get manifestly worse the ability to endure month-long heat waves of 40 degrees or more as you might imagine will impact their ability to be outside to sleep um, it'll aggravate medical conditions so we're really talking about tangible impacts and, and the case itself is referred to as Duarte Agostino after one of the Portuguese youth who was uh, in, in that group of six and since been filed in 2020, it's been fast-tracked by the court and then referred to its grand chamber, which only a, a tiny minority of cases experience this. We anticipate that the judgment and the hearing will take place on the 27th of September mm. will inevitably impact um, everyone within this the, the space of these 32 countries. It will produce a legally binding decision on those member states, which is different from what you might expect from an international treaty body mechanism. Here we're dealing with something of a different order, which could produce a, a whole variety of impacts. And I think it, it supplements or builds upon and increases the potential of domestic litigation, unlocking the potential of domestic courts going forward. And indeed, you know, there has been a lot of domestic litigation to this point on the issue of climate change, and there have been some wins to a certain extent. But what I think this case brings is that if we look at the sum total of what the domestic courts have said to date, you know, demanding governments act on climate change, even if we just consider that every every state within those 32 countries did what the most progressive judgment demanded, we would overshoot the two degree mark of global warming and we would be on our way to climate catastrophe and climate breakdown. And what we're asking is for the European Court of Human Rights is to ensure that the obligations of states are collectively consistent with the 1.5 degrees pathway to ensure the protection of, of human rights and to maintain our trajectory within a realm of some safety uh, from, from climate breakdown. So I think it is this, this, this need for a, a collective um, and consistent approach at a European level rather than leaving it to each individual state to determine their own contribution and their own mitigation methods. Yeah. So the, so the 1.5 that you're talking about is the Paris Agreement for us not to go into total meltdown. Um, but um, are we talking about like an international mechanism that would say, right, 
this is the amount of carbon emissions that you can actually produce year upon year and this international mechanism be enforced. It aims to address the fact that states have not agreed amongst themselves uh, what each of them should do to maintain this um, trajectory of, of staying within 1.5 degrees Celsius as agreed in the Paris Agreement. So there's no one way, there's no unified approach to how this is done. And it means in the, without this system, um, the burden sharing that each state should take on in the climate fight is uncertain. And none of them is sure what their fair share of the fight should be. This is the, this is sort of the, the, the thing that is preventing um, cohesive and consistent action in uh, responding to uh, the uncertainties that we face. And as a result, states have kind of taken advantage of this and they've adopted sort of self-serving interpretations of what their obligations actually are. Climate goals, various different agreements that, they, that they'll say, you know, at the climate conference, the conference of parties, this is what we're going to adhere to. Exactly, and it means that there's no way of assessing whether, collectively speaking, we're on track. Good luck with the challenge, Garrod, and indeed all of the challenges that you and your team are involved in, and thanks for your time today. Thanks so much, great to chat to you. And that was Garrod O'Queen, head of the Global Legal Action Network, and who lectures in transnational human rights litigation at the Irish Centre for Human Rights in Galway. That's it for this month's show. Thanks, as always, to our funders, Irish Aid, and thanks to you for listening. Until next time, take good care.